Thank you so much for the uh, privilege of being here tonight. I've heard about Donvale Presbyterian so many times, and this is my first time here. I'm just delighted to be with you. Uh, really lovely being here as part of a youth service. Thank you so much to um, your young people who have been blessing us with music and prayer and readings. That's, I find that enormously encouraging. And I'd love you to turn back to that passage that we read just before, 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you have Bible, a Bible handy, um, keep it open. We're going to look at one verse in particular, but we're actually going to scan not only the, the passage we read, but several other parts of the story around the section of 1 Samuel. The verse I particularly want to focus on is uh, 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. Let me just read that again. Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. I think there are many significant junctures in our lives, big turning points, or, or maybe not big turning points, but just when things change significantly. Maybe your first day at school, or the day when you uh, changed school and encountered a whole new world, when you left school, when you got your first job, when you got married, when you had a kid, when you lost your job, when you had that diagnosis, when you retired. All these different landmarks in our lives. And I think those junctures are often points of reflection. They're moments when we might just slow down and kind of think about, wow, how, how on earth did this happen? What's been happening? How, how's life been going? What is next? Uh, I don't know about you, but it seems to me like life just rattles along like a train most of the time an unstoppable train. And then some of these changes are like we come into a station and it just it slows down and it stops and we think about where we are at. And I want to give you a word tonight that you might want to use the next time you are at one of those turning points in life. It's an odd word. It's a Hebrew word. It's that word we read in 1 Samuel 7 verse 12, Ebenezer. Samuel, the leader of God's people at that time, was marking in Israel's life a significant juncture, a major point in their experience. And at that point, he erects this great big stone. And Ebenezer means stone of help. He sets up this monument and calls it Ebenezer. He's saying, all the way and right up to this point, God has been our helper. It's been... God's help all the way. And it's worth us looking back at the, at the backstory to this. 
to see why that was such a good word for him to use. Why it was such a great idea to set up a monument, erect a stone, call that stone Ebenezer, stone of help, as a monument to the fact that right up to that point, it had been God's help all the way. I want us to look at the backstory, see why it was a good word for Samuel to use, but see also why it is a good word for us to use. You, you don't have to love the word Ebenezer. It's a weird word. You don't have to call your next kid Ebenezer. Though I reckon little Ebby's got a bit of a ring to it. But whether you like the word or not, it is a magnificent concept. And so first we're going to look at Israel's story. And then after that, I'd like you to look at your story. The story of your own life. First, let's start with Israel. Samuel was raised up as leader in the days of the judges. And you may remember that the days of the judges were the days of do what's right in your own eyes. Which kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Maybe days not radically dissimilar to the days in which we are living. There were days in which God's people had drifted far from God and all sorts of crazy and awful things were happening amongst them. Uh, Eli was the elderly priest at the time and he had two sons who were also priests and they were wicked young men. In fact, if you flick back in Samuel, it describes them in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, as worthless men. Isn't that a horrible description? But it was true, they were worthless men. If you were to read on there, you'd see that they were manipulative and greedy. And it says in verse 17 of chapter 2, the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the man treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Although they served God in the holy place, they had no regard for the holiness of God. Just a little bit further on, it says that they even uh, had, had adulterous relationships with women right outside the tent of meeting, right outside the place of worship. Eli says to them, verse 24, My sons, it is no good report that I hear. They were wicked young men in evil days. And God does not turn a blind eye to sin. He promises in chapter 2 that judgment will come. And then in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, that judgment does come. 1 Samuel 4, we don't have time to read it now, but it, it records one of the lowest points ever in Israel's history. Israel engages in battle with the Philistines, who at that time were their arch enemies. And Israel is beaten by the Philistines. That repeatedly, when Israel gets beaten, is a sign of God's judgment against them. God was allowing them to be disciplined by their enemies. He abandons them for a time to bring them to their senses. Well, how do they respond when the, Israel, when the Philistines beat them? 
Well, Hophni and Phinehas, these two wicked young priests, come up with a plan. They say, well, let's, let's take the ark of God into battle with us. Now, the ark was basically just a, a chest, a box covered in gold, but it was symbolic of the throne of God on earth. It was the most holy object on earth, a symbol of the glory and the majesty and the holy presence of God. Well, these two young guys think, okay, if we take the box into battle, God will be with us and everything will go well. But of course, you could take the ark with you, but that does not necessarily mean God goes with you. You can't presume that just because you have or do something spiritual or religious, God is there. I think people still easily think that way. We think in this, this unhealthy, speculative way. I, I used to live as, as a pastor in a, in a house right next door to the church. And one of the neighbours on the other side of the church never came to church. But we'd chat and talk. And he, he said to me once, he said, I like living next door to the church because it gives me a feeling of being near God. <laughs> What nonsense. Like living next to a church doesn't get you near to God. But we can think that way. We can think that if, if we sing with all our heart, God is there. If we're always at church, if, if we go to a Christian school, if we kind of live this right kind of life, then, then surely God will turn up. But that, that presumes that God turns up because of our actions, what we are doing. And the reality is, you can do spiritual things, you can do religious things, you can do churchy things, and God might not turn up. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. These two wicked young priests take the ark with them into battle. They think, now the presence of God is with us. And the Philistines beat them again. And this time, the unthinkable happens. We read it in chapter 4, verse 11. I'll read, read from verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This had never happened before. The ark of God representing the presence and the holiness and the glory of God, now captured and taken away by the Philistines. Well, report is sent to Eli, and when the old man hears what's happened, he falls backwards off his chair, breaks his neck and dies. And it's not the death of his two sons that knocks him off his rocker. It's the loss 
of the ark of God. We're also told then in chapter 4 that the wife of one of those two sons was pregnant. And when she heard the news of what had happened and that her husband had died in battle, she went into labour. And true to form in this chapter, you, you can guess what happened. She dies in childbirth. And as she is dying, she names the child and she calls him Ichabod, which means no glory. The glory of God has departed. The ark has been lost. And she names the child she will never meet. No glory. I said before, you don't have to name your next kid Ebenezer. <laughs> but what a tragedy to name your kid Ichabod. God had abandoned his people. God had withdrawn from them a sense of his presence. You know, for all of us, one of the greatest blessings you can have in this life is a sense of God's blessing on your life. There's nothing better than a sense of God's favour and his love and his grace and his kindness being worked in your life. And there's nothing worse than a sense of his displeasure. Picture a whole lot of people on the beach. It's a beautiful, hot, sunny day. They're all out lying, soaking in the sun, getting cancer and having a wonderful time. And, uh, and then all of a sudden like the wind changes and it gets cold and, and clouds start to roll in and it darkens rapidly and you know that a massive storm is on the way and there are the first spits of rain and people like pack up eskies and towels as fast as they can go and clear out. And that's what it's like when God's glory departs. The warmth and sunshine of God's grace and love is replaced by this threatening sense of gloom and judgment. It's a wonderful thing when you sense God's face shines on you. It's a dreadful thing when you sense that you have displeased a holy God. But for Israel, the sun would shine again. Actually, that's always the case with God's people. He may withdraw, but he comes again in grace. In chapter 6, if you were to read on, and it's a great story to read if you want to read it later, in chapter 6, the ark is returned. The Philistines find this thing is um, actually too hot to handle, and they find out a way of sending it back to Israel, and it goes home. And once the ark is back, Samuel gathers the nation together to formally renew their covenant and their commitment to God. And that's what's happening when we get to chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 3, he gathers the people together and he mediates for them, intercedes for them, makes offerings on their behalf, prays and pleads to God for mercy on their behalf. And then... Right at that moment, 
while they're sacrificing and praying and offering to God and recommitting to the Lord, right at that moment, the flippin' Philistines turn up again, which I think is a pretty dirty trick. It's like attacking the enemies while they're at church. And this time, God, we read it before, God literally thunders at them, scares the living daylights out of them with a mighty storm that rolls in. How incredibly kind of God to do that. His people had presumed on him. They'd been living in terrible sin. They'd been doing what was right in their own eyes, not in his eyes. They had just experienced the worst day of their life, defeated by the Philistines and the Ark of God captured. At that very moment, the Philistines were taking advantage of them. But the moment that they sought God's face, God came and helped them. No lecture, no hesitation, no conditions. God turns up and rescues them. And that's why Samuel then takes the stone and sets it up and calls it Ebenezer. And he says there, verse 12, Till now, the Lord has helped us. Despite appalling sin, despite national disgrace, despite ceaseless opposition, God had helped them. Samuel had been interceding for them and confessing their sin on their behalf and making offerings and sacrifices on their behalf. And God had heard their covenant mediator and come to rescue them. And you know, friends, the wonderful reality is that we have a mediator far greater than Samuel. Samuel was raised up in the godless days of the judges to be a man of God and to intercede between God and his people, but he was only a faint shadow of the prophet who has come for us, the prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator who stands between us in all our sin and problems and need and our holy God, and he intercedes for us and he prays for us and he offers himself in our place so that God might come, not in judgment and gloom and darkness, but so that God might come in the warmth and sunshine and beauty of his love and grace. Jesus Christ took that dark punishment for us. On the cross, he bore all our sins. He pleaded for us. He continues to intercede for us. Over him was written, Ichabod, the glory departed as he suffered under the wrath of his father for our sin. 
and so it is because of the finished work of Jesus that we can say, till now, all the way to this point, God has helped us. Despite our sin, despite failure, despite trouble, despite presumption, despite enemies and defeats, all the way, God has helped us. That was Israel's story. But I want to move now and think about our story. Hopefully your story is less dramatic than Israel's, but maybe not. Maybe there are all sorts of difficult and painful things in your life. But you know, for all of us who know Jesus Christ as that mediator and saviour, for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we really can erect a monument at any juncture in our life and say, till now, the Lord has helped us. And I want to suggest some of the scenarios where we might want to say, Ebenezer. Well, you don't have to use the crazy word. But some of the junctures where we might say, thus far, I have come by God's grace and God's help. First of all, I think as we look at our own sin and failure, we can say, Ebenezer. I don't know about you, but I can't look back on my past without seeing way too much sin and failure. You don't have to be as wicked as Eli's sons to know that you have fallen short of God's standards. Maybe some of you look back on awful sin before you were saved. Maybe others of you look back on pretty awful sin since you were saved. I've just read a, uh, a book on being a man. Thought I needed some help. <laughs> but so often as I've read this book, I have just felt exposed. Exposed as a son and a father and a husband and a friend. There's so much as I look back that I'm not excited about in my own life. Maybe you feel that and maybe some of those who are younger here tonight already feel that. You don't have to get too far into life to have that sense that actually a lot of what I've done is not okay. And I think, especially at church, it's easier for us to look a lot better than we really are. Deep down, we know that if God's blessing and kindness and favour and grace were dependent on our purity, our commitment, our integrity, our excellence of life, 
Ichabod would have been written over our lives long ago. But you know, the miracle of grace is this. All our sins are forgiven because of Jesus Christ, our mediator. Because Ichabod was written over him, it will never be written over those who believe in him. He bore our sin. He took the punishment in full. He paid for all our sin, past, present and future. He absorbed in his own body and soul the punishment of God for wickedness and evil. And because of his finished work on the cross, all our sin is forgiven. We, we're given a clean slate. There, there will probably still be consequences for past sin. There often are in our relationships, even in our own souls and minds and bodies. But before God, everything is wiped clean. What an amazing thing it is to look back on your life. Look back on sin and failure and disappointment and ways you've stuffed up and screwed up and be able to say, till now the Lord has helped and he's forgiven and he's cleansed and I am his. Ebenezer. So as we, as we look back on sin and failure, I think, this is a monument we can erect. But secondly, as, as we look back on hard times that we've encountered, we can say Ebenezer. I don't know what difficulties you look back on in your life, but I do know that the longer you live, the more difficulties you have to look back on. And maybe as you look back, there's grief, loss, maybe family tension and division maybe heartbreak over loved ones, maybe ill health, maybe mental health challenges, maybe dreams that have perished and left you gutted, maybe friends have let you down, maybe times of exhaustion or burnout. But you know, even in those times, as a believer, you will often find that you look back and can nonetheless say, Ebenezer, all the way, God has been my helper. It often takes a bit of space for us to see that when I'm in the heat of trial and difficulty. It's very hard to say, God's my helper. But with the passing of time with the, the beautiful benefit of hindsight, we often look back, don't we, and say, God was my helper. I think back to a whole bunch of stuff in my own life. I think back to when I was a student, living on the smell of an oily rag, as uh, students do, and God providing amazingly. I think back to when one of our kids was seriously injured and we had a couple of months of constant vigils at hospital and we look back on that now and see just the amazing ways God was with us helping and providing supporting and encouraging look back to times when I've been absolutely drowning in work and not knowing how to get through 
and God was there, strengthening and helping and enabling. Look back on times of deep sadness, but times when I've known the comfort of God in the midst of that sadness. So often, last-minute reprieves or wonderful answers to prayer or strength in weakness or encouragement from the most unlikely source. Friends, that is never luck or coincidence. It's the kind, gracious hand of God. And so I wonder if you can look back on times of hardship and difficulty and say, Ebenezer, till now the Lord has helped. Sin, hardship. I think a third place where we can use this word is as we look at all our joys and blessings. Uh, James says in the book of James, every good and perfect gift comes from above. There's not one good thing we enjoy in life that is not from the kindness and grace of God. And that is true for unbelievers as well as for believers. We call it common grace. God's grace common to the whole of humanity. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? God sends the rain to shine on the just and on the unjust. God sends rain and sunshine and blessings and good things to, to all people, not just those who acknowledge him. Paul at Lystra, speaking to a pagan crowd, says, He did you good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He's saying that to people who don't know God, don't believe in God. He's saying, God has given you all these good things. Friends, every good thing that you enjoy in life, every good day that you have, is the kindness and grace of God. Did you get a good friend at school? Did, did you pass that course? Did you get a great ATAR? Did you get the job? Did you enjoy the holiday? Did you have a lovely cup of coffee? Do you have a good friend? Did you enjoy the day at the beach? You know, every single one of the good things that we enjoy is from the hand of a kind, gracious, loving God. Every success you have is because God enabled you to have that. And if he cares for people who don't know him and acknowledge him in that way, how much more do we have in Jesus Christ? All the blessings, the spiritual blessings that are ours through faith in the Lord Jesus. The, the blessing of being part of a faithful church, how good is that? The blessing of being able to serve others. The blessing of seeing someone come to faith. The blessing of God's word to strengthen us, of prayer to, to talk with God about anything and everything. The blessing of, of Christian fellowship, like, like the kids who said before, just the, the blessing of youth group on Friday night. All these are God's kindness and grace. 
And so we do well to stop sometimes and raise that monument and say, Ebenezer, till now, all of it, all the way up to this point, God's help, God's grace. So, in our sin, in our trials, in our blessings, and finally, let me say this, as we look to an unknown future, we can say, Ebenezer. Imagine that a book is written telling the story of your life. And what I've been through already are the chapters. There's one chapter there that records all your sins and failures and stuff-ups. It's a pretty ugly chapter, not one that you like to read too often. But, you know, over every page of that chapter, it's all been blotted out because the word Ebenezer has been written over everything. You go to chapter 2 and it's the story of all the trials and hardships and difficulties and sad and grievous things you've been through. But over every page of that chapter there's the word Ebenezer. And then there's another chapter about all the good stuff in your life, all the fun times, all the happy things, all the positive, all the successes. That chapter's got records, photos of all your certificates and your trophies. I saw all the trophies around the corner. I was quite intrigued by that. I wonder if that had to do with the preaching ministry or what. But, uh, you know, um, all the good stuff that's there in that third chapter, but over, over all your successes is written the word Ebenezer. All God's help. And then there's another chapter yet to be written. What will be in it? Who knows? <laughs> None of us know, do we, what is to come. But the word Ebenezer helps us not only look backwards, but forwards. I think that's why Samuel erected this great big monument and stuck it there somewhere near Mizpah, wherever that is. So that down the track, when a dad is out mountain biking with his little Jewish kid, and they're peddling through the fields near Mizpah. The kid says, hey, what's that dirty great big stone over there for, Dad? And Dad says, hey, let me tell you a story. We had this horrible time in our life, blah, 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 and off he goes. And it reminds that kid, and it reminds successive generations, and it reminds that dad as he looks forward that all the way it has been God's help. There is to be no presumption, of course. Eli's wicked kids presumed that if they had the ark, God would be with them. Friends, there is no place for presumption as we move into the future of our lives. But if you go into the future trusting God and praying and reading his word and depending on his grace, then you can be sure that God will help you. I don't know what's in the next chapter of your life. I don't know what's in the next chapter of mine. But if in the next chapter of your life you have to move somewhere that you don't want to go, you can be sure that God will be your helper. If in the next chapter there's a new school or a new job or marriage or a kid or retirement, you can be sure that God will be with you. If just around the corner there is a grim diagnosis, 
you can know that God is your helper. And if in the next chapter you lie on your deathbed, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be able to breathe out the word Ebenezer all the way. God's help. I want you to know that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe in him and trust him, then this word is written large over the whole of your life. And if you don't know Jesus in that way, tonight could actually be that juncture, that great turning point in your life where this becomes the night that God so clearly became your helper. You just have to look to the Lord Jesus with all the stuff of your life. Look to him with all the sin and failure stuff and confess it to him and ask for his forgiveness. Look to him with all the trouble and hardship and the, the discouraging stuff and ask him to be your helper. Look to him with all the good stuff of your life and thank him for his undeserved kindness already and ask him that he would continue to be kind and gracious to you and look to Jesus for all the rest of the days of your life. And if, if you're young, if you're a kid here tonight, hopefully there'll be loads of days ahead of you. Ask God to be with you every single one of those days through the rest of school, through your adult life, through whatever and if, if you're not quite so young and at that point of life where life is slipping away more than ever do you not need to know that God is your helper will you erect a monument in your life tonight look back look forward and say, all the way, God has been my helper. You know, there's, a, uh, there's an old hymn that uses this word. When I was a kid at church, I used to think it was the weirdest hymn in the world. I thought, it's so weird to have a hymn where the word Ebenezer makes the cut. But when you know this backstory, and when that backstory actually starts to become part of the story of your own life, then the word doesn't seem so weird anymore. The hymn starts like this. We're going to sing it in a moment. It starts, Come thou fount of every blessing. That, that's a good first line, isn't it? Jesus, God, the overflowing wellspring of everything good. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. That's in the first verse. It carries on a bit more. Second verse. Here it comes. Here's the weird word. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. That is all the way through to now. By your help I have come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. The hymn writer saying the same, he's looking back. Everything up till now, God's grace. Everything ahead, 
I hope to get safely home by your good grace. And the last verse starts this way, and it's a great way for us to finish now. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Can I lead you in prayer? Lord God, we thank you so much that you are the helper of people like us. People who have sinned and messed up, and people who struggle, people who sometimes enjoy the most wonderful things in life, people for whom the future is unknown. We thank you, God, that you draw near to us, that you forgive us, that you rescue us, that you help us all the way. I pray for anyone here tonight who doesn't know you in that way. Make tonight that juncture in their lives where they come to see what you're really like. Help us to trust in Jesus. And even if we've done that for years or even decades, help us to continue to trust in Jesus and to know that it's your help all the way. We praise and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.